Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership, and we do so by talking with recognized leaders who do not merely have jobs, but men and women who have been called to their chosen sphere of influence. Okay, Dave Cortman. Hey, I'm excited to have you here uh, on our on our leadership podcast. Um, we have talked an awful lot on our podcast, and it's been kind of one of the the neat themes that have taken place. Uh, that our our kind of journey is never a straight line. We 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 work. You know, I, I work with teenagers uh, for a living, and it's it, it's so intriguing because they want to know. What does step number 17 look like? <laughs> and, and we're constantly trying to tell them, like, hey, don't sweat step number 17. Just be faithful in the next step. Yeah, worry about step number yeah, one. <laughs> ju- just worry about getting started, you know? That's right. And so, so here, here you are. You're an, you're an attorney making an enormous impact on our nation, particularly right now. Uh, your work, your research is, is right at the epicenter of what's taking place, even with our Supreme Court right now, with some rulings that distinctly inform how faith, and certainly from my perspective, how Christian education with this most recent Supreme Court case, uh, how that will play out in our nation in, in the years and decades to come. But I also love the fact that this certainly was not what you intended to do when you were you were a younger guy, and so so tell tell us a little bit about kind of how life started for you and the the various uh, twists and turns in your journey that led you to this spot. Yeah, so it, it, definitely not a straight line, um, but uh, God knows what He's doing. We just don't get to see it until later on in life. But you know, looking back, I was brought up in a Christian home, and that was important to us, and so I had that good foundation. But when it came to a college and career, we never had those discussions. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about them. You just kind of thought, well, what do I like to do? And, and I, my generation was the first to go to college in my family. So, so my siblings and I were the first ones to go to college. My parents didn't. Their grandparents didn't. So that was kind of a new thing in our family. And um, so, so when I was younger, I figured, what did I want to do? Well, I like numbers. I like neatness. You know, they tease like I'm like Jerry Seinfeld. I'm like very neat. <laughs> so I like the fact of, of numbers. I like the columns. I like the counting. That just was orderly and neat for me. So I went to college to become a CPA. Well, then I learned that becoming an accountant was not neat and it was not numbers. That was bookkeeping. Accounting was all theory and these big, thick books. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> so I graduated with a, with a, with a Bachelor of Science and, and, and minored in accounting, but didn't want to do it. One of my brothers at the time was opening a restaurant business. And so I thought, well, I need to get a job. And so I went into the restaurant business. So that's how my career started. Okay. I love that. And so, you know, attorney right the epicenter of everything but starts with accounting and a restaurant business um so so what what caused that change so is is, how long were you in the restaurant business and kind of what was what was that change factor yeah i was in the restaurant business quite a long time i grew up in it so it was one of my first jobs so when i was about 10 years old my brother opened up a restaurant and so i went and helped out and so i kind of learned the business wherever i would go um, like to college i'd get a job at a restaurant i knew how to make pizzas and fling them in the air and those type of things and we did full menu Um, so that was kind of the thing to do because I, i had that skill level uh, but after a while, um, the Lord was kind of hitting me saying, so this is great. What are you doing for my kingdom? And I'm like, well, I've got one of those track racks over there. So when people come in the restaurant, they could pull, you know, learn something about prayer, learn something about God. And God's like, no, that's not quite enough. So through some, through some prayer and, and, and speaking to people, I've got a brother who's a doctor who's encouraging me to become a professional. He's like, you're wasting yourself. Go back to school. 
you know, go be a professional. And how old, how old were you at that point? So I was in my late 20s at Love that it. point. Okay, great. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure I want to go back to school. You know, I was 29 years old. Through a, through a, you know, we talk about Gideon and his two fleeces, right? He puts out the fleece and he wants it wet, and then he puts out the fleece and he wants it dry. Uh, I put out about six fleeces in, <laughs> in this whole process, and then all my friends were like, you know, God's going to strike you with like lightning and thunder because you're not listening to the first four fleeces. Uh, but the point was, if, if, if this is what the Lord wanted me to do, I wanted to know this was his will. If I was going to you know, sell my business and sell my house and go to law school at 30 years old and I was just married. If I'm going to like completely change my entire life, I want to know that this is God's will. If mm -hmm. I'm stepping into his will, I want to make sure it's his will and not my own creation and my own concoction. So that's what kind of led to moving out of the restaurant business, work for Youth for Christ for a while, met this gentleman named Jay Seculo, who is with a group called ACLJ, uh, basically got offered a scholarship to go to law school. And uh, I was off and running at almost 30 years old, back back in school with my little three-ring binders and my little tabs like I used to have when I was a kid, uh, back to school again. So I, I was, I was uh, reading through and then listening to a podcast of a person last night. Uh, and she didn't begin her begin really like like her real life until she was fifty six, yeah. and and uh, you know we try to talk to to our students all the time. People think that well, once you've gone down this track, that's the track you have to go down. Right. And living in the center, living in the center of God's will is so crucial. Right. Uh, I, I I try to tell our students all the time be in your passion. If you, if you be in your passion, the money will come, yeah. but don't choose jobs. And we're kind of kids of the eighties. Uh, you know, and, and, and we, you know, we jobs. heard from a lot of people there. It's just go out and get a job. <laughs> it's got to make money. That's all it is, yeah. you know? And I do love the fact of the, these new millennials, frankly, they have a better grasp on that than I think right. probably we did as young guys. They you do. Know? They, they do. They, they, they have passions and they want to follow them in their careers, which is fantastic. Right. Um, and, and, you know, kind of this is how I am with my kids, too, with my boys. And I say, look, my, my thought about life is God has given every one of us special skills and talents in special areas. Not everybody's great at everything, but everybody's really good at something. And, and, and our goal in life is to, is to tap into that, to figure out what's the skill, what's the passion God has given me, and then use that for his kingdom in your career. Because that's where you're going to be most satisfied. That's where you're going to honor God in what you do. And you're going to be good at it. And it's not like you would just wake up and I'm, I'm a great lawyer. you got to work hard, right? Mm -hmm. The work comes along with it. You know, look at sports. Even the guys who are naturally gifted, the best guys in all sports, they're out there early. They're working late. They're at practice early. And it's the same thing in your career. You've got to work at it to be good. But everybody has that passion. And, and our job as adults is to, is to make sure that we counsel the kids to find the passion and pursue that for the Lord because that can be your career. So let's, so let's tap into just a couple of details before we get into some of the cases that I'm kind of geeking over and I can't <laughs> wait to talk to you about. But here we are at 30 years old. You're married at this point in time. Right. Little kids along for the ride. Not yet. Not uh, yet. Just recently married. We got married when I was 28. So we're okay. only married like a year at this okay. time. And AJ works with me every day, just a few feet from my desk. Uh, both of your kids are graduates here. And so that's, that's exciting just to see the connections that are, that are just within this one family, which is, which is pretty cool. So, so at that point in time, uh, you know, tell your, your new wife that, Hey, we're going to cash in the chips and, and go to law school. Is, is that a challenge? Is that something that requires, uh, conversations and prayer or is that just, Hey, this is where we're rolling. Yeah, no, it was, it was a year basically going through the process when I was at youth for Christ, trying to figure out what to do. 
praying about it. Law school was, was on the radar, but I was planning on going to Stetson, which was down in Florida, because that's where both our family lives. We were just married. We didn't want to move away. Uh, then we get this opportunity to go to Virginia Beach from Florida. It's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to pick up as newlyweds, leave both our families, and go up north and go to law school on this whole new career. And here I am, 30, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking to myself, well, what if I'm not good at this? Or what if it doesn't work out? I just move my family up there and, and then don't have a job when I'm done. And, and so God just kind of led us through that, through a lot of prayer. We were trying to get out of debt, which is, which is another thing for another day. But, but don't get yourselves in debt. Who's ever listening mm-hmm. to it? It's, it's too much of a weight on you. So we were getting out of debt. So we were putting down these fleeces. Lord, if this is what you want, you know, help me get to, to law school. Show me where you want to go. And then the scholarship came up, and it was going to be two years and not three. And I thought, well, we really won't want to go into debt again. And so we prayed about that third year and then went and asked, would you be willing to give us a third year? And they did. So for the first time, they gave us all three-year scholarships. Mm-hmm. So the Lord just kind of opened up the doors and said, okay, look, you, you got to walk through it. So I remember that last conversation after a full year of praying, talking, getting these scholarships, and, and, and AJ was behind me. And I had my last phone call about the scholarship. And we said, look, if, if, he, if they offer us that third year, we're going. That's the sixth fleece. If we do more fleeces than <laughs> that, we got to yeah, yeah, worry yeah, about that's that. Right. And, and we knew once the phone call came that it was, okay, the board has approved that third year. You're on full ride scholarship to go to law school to do this, work for the Lord and nothing else. Hung up the phone, turned around, and I said, babe, we're moving to Virginia Beach. And that was, that was kind of the story. You know, that, and, and in, in my own story with my family, it, living in the center when you when you bump into people who are living in the center of God's will, you can see it. Like you can see it in their demeanor. You can see it because there's a level of satisfaction, and that might be a lawyer for me in school administration. For other people, there's almost any job out right. there. You can still be living in sure. God's center, but it's rarely easy. Yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 it almost always involves some level of risky behavior. Sure. That, that from a world's perspective, here you are, a successful restaurateur. You're working through this thing. You're, you you know, you've got this track. It could that could have been the easier track, and yet pursuing the center requires the risk of trusting God. And yet here you are, you know, two two decades later plus. And you've seen the fruition of what it is to live in the center, which is so cool. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the, the back end of it is, is you know, God is always faithful. Yeah. That's just the, that's the place you got to start. You got to understand that. And you got to trust that. But sure, it was it was uh, it was pretty scary. You know, moving away from both our families. We're just newly married. And we're going up there. AJ didn't have a job. We didn't even have a place to live. We basically shipped our stuff up there and said, OK, in, in that week's time that it takes for them to get our furniture, we need to find a place to live. We're looking all week, couldn't find anywhere. Our stuff's being shipped on Friday. And we have, so the driver's calling us, where do you want me to bring your furniture? We're like, we don't know. We don't have a place to live yet. And so we're like, Lord, you know, what are, what are we doing here? And so, of course, as God always seems to wait till the last minute, you know, we could talk about that. But, um, you know, we find a place to live on, on, on Friday and the truck comes the same day and, and, and everything works out. AJ's looking for a job. She meets my, my boss then, Jay Sekulow, his wife, and says, and she says, hey, have you found a job yet? And AJ says, no. And she says, well, what do you think about being Jay's assistant? He's opening up an office up here at Regent University. And so God just kind of, so AJ got to work with, with the group I was working with. She got to see what I did, and she got to learn it and, and be involved in it. So she knew the, the hours and the stresses, and, and, and it was so neat how God just kind of orchestrated all that. So, so you have that fear of stepping out, but it's kind of like that, um, you know, the movie where, um, um, 
I was trying to remember which one of the of the trilogy, but where you, you got to take a step out. There's a step there, but you don't see it. And then Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. right? And then, but until you take the step, then it appears. Right. So you got to step out in blind faith. It's right. kind of like that. You've right. got to take the step, and God's got you. You take the step, and God's got you. So it's I, I also cool. love the, the component of your story where you have this this kind of larger than life figure, this kind of hero in the Christian faith, Jay Sekulow, who I think probably most of the listeners will will know that name, will understand the the shows that he's been running for for a long time, and and just for how he has cut a very important path uh, for faith in our nation, and so he he spots talent in you, and and now that talent has has really come to fruition where you're impacting the kingdom through what you're doing, in your role you're supervising thirty to forty attorneys under you as well. Are you looking for that next round of talent, and how do you what do you do to develop them as talent also? Yeah, and that that is that is. Absolutely true. So I learned under Jay, uh, who's a fantastic lawyer, has a mind like a trap. Um, you know, he reads something, he knows exactly what page and who said it and where it was. And of course, we read, you know, hundreds of opinions, thousands of pages. Um, and then about 15, 16 years ago, I moved over to a group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is where I am now. Um, fantastic group. Um, I think it's we're the, we're the largest legal organization who, who defends religious liberty in the world. Um, so it's been it's been such a pleasure taking those things that I've learned and applying them here, um, and it's just a it's it's just a group that that it's not about um, a particular person, but organizationally, like our CEO Mike Farris, who's who's a great attorney, he's litigated at the Supreme Court also, but it's 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 about mentoring the next generation. It's about training everyone. It's not one person you know necessarily taking that that spot. Um, so it's been a neat transition in doing that. And, and one of the things we're always looking for, and what's odd, I've been here about 15 years, we're always hiring. That's how society culture mm -hmm. is. We're growing. God has blessed us uh, financially. We're a 501c3, so people just donate to us. God has taken care of us for, for so many years. We've grown, I think, every year since I've been there. And we look for people, you talk about mentoring and how do you move it to the next generation. Um, we look toward people who are hungry for what we mm -hmm. do. So we've got this new thing where, you know, we always read some leadership books and things like that. Uh, we're Pat Lencioni and it, and it's called hungry, humble, and smart. Mm -hmm. And so you, you're looking for people who, when I interview someone, the first thing I want to know is, are you looking for a job or did the Lord call you to do this? That's right. And, and that to me is, is number one, because if I'm weighing jobs and I can get a job here and a job there, you're not quite on the That's same right. page. If this is what I want to hear is look, this is where the Lord called me. This is where my passion is. This is what I want to do. Because you can go make a lot more money in a secular law firm and in, in big law. That's right. And, you know, for as long as I've been doing this, and, and a lot of us has practiced at the Supreme Court and argued there, you could make boatloads more money. But, but, but I was called to this ministry, to this mission, and it's not about the money. Now, God certainly takes care of us, uh, but it's not about the money. It's about it's about going and serving where the Lord called you, and that's the part that you want to tap into, which is what we're looking for in, in the younger attorneys right. that are and, coming And up. when you have that calling, there's no plan B. No, right. plan, no right. plan B will ever answer the, what, you're, what you're searching for yeah. because that's what God's called you for. So I, so I love that. All right, so the, kind of a little bit of background on leadership and a little bit background on your securitist path that kind of got you to this spot. Um, let's jump in on some of these cases. So the, the Supreme Court just ruled in a very important case in the state of Maine. Uh, outline that case for us and how that's going to impact uh, kind of our faith journey as a nation as well. Yeah, a really big case. And so um, up north, especially in the northeast, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of rural areas. And so a state like Maine doesn't have public schools everywhere in, in every town. 
So because their state constitution requires a public education, as most states do, uh, they basically have to figure out how to provide that because they don't have enough public schools there. So what they do is they have tuition assistance where they say, okay, if you live in a town that doesn't have a public school, you can pick the private school of your choice and then we'll pay a certain tuition rate for you to go there. So regardless of what it happens to be. But they started this um, requirement or, or, or prohibition or restriction several years, a couple of decades ago, where they'll pay for any private school unless you're what they call sectarian, which just means religious. So they won't pay if you decide to go to Hebrew Christian Academy, for right. example, even though you'll get a state-approved education and you'll get all the learning you need. So that discrimination is what the case was about. Is it constitutional to say, we will pay for students to go to any private school of their choice, but we will not pay for them if they decide to go to religious school? And, and, so, and so in that process, it's the definition of what is an education. Right. They've added the idea that it must be non-sectarian. Right. Uh, and that becomes an interpretation of the law, which, which again, it, we see throughout uh, kind of the history of our nation, even since the founders, where they are constantly striving and struggling, and, and we respect them for it, we want them to, where, where they're just researching what did the Constitution say and what right. did they mean, yeah. you know? And so here we see this state policy, and now they have sided with these families who were, who were brought this case against the Secretary of Education for the state of Maine. Uh, now they've sided with these families where they will be able to take that money. So, so what type of implication then does that have? Obviously, for me, I'm in Christian education, but for the countless parents who uh, are paying tuition and yet they're still paying taxes in their towns and they will never receive the educational uh, uh, value that, because their kids are going to be in a private Christian school. Yeah. So how, what, what, do you, what do you think the long-term impact of that will be? I, I think it's giant for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, people have heard about the Establishment Clause, the separation of church and state. You know, you hear about it all the time, bantied about. Um, it has been exaggerated, you know, over the past several decades of basically saying that anything to do with government and anything to do with religion has to be completely cut off and separated, especially when it comes to funding or any government programs. So you hear that all the time. You hear that mantra, oh, violates the separation of church and state. You have religion in school. You have, you know, some government funding program. These type of cases basically chop that down and say, no, that's not a correct historical view of the Establishment Clause or the Constitution. And so what's interesting about that is, is the reason that matters so much is that that establishment clause has been used over the years as a justification, in my opinion, for discriminating against religious people mm -hmm. and religious organizations. So if you narrow that construction and say, no, that's not what it means, then you open up, and, and all we're talking about here is, is equal treatment. So if you open it up to private religious schools, the law says now you have to open it up to private religious schools. Just because they do a religious thing there doesn't mean you could discriminate against them. And this case was interesting because it followed on a case that yes. I argued several years ago um, on, a, on a similar type issue about, about the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause and where they meet. And what's cool about that, that there's this area where, you know, and, and this, is, this, is a, this is another thing, you talk about being geeky, a little bit of historical stuff. You know, the courts and experts always say, well, there's this conflict, there's this tension between 
the free exercise clause, what rights do we have as individuals to, to practice our faith, and the establishment clause, which is a limitation on government and how much it can get involved in religion. And they say there's always this tension there. Well, that's the problem. There's no tension because if you, I spoke the other day and I kind of, I said it this way in, in front of a, a chaplain's conference in, out west. And I said, think about that for a minute. So, so the founders are getting together, right? And they're drafting the First Amendment. And they say, we have these two clauses right next to each other, right? We have the establishment clause, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion, and the free exercise clause right after it, nor prohibit the free exercise thereof. Well, first of all, it's one clause, it's not two. So, so, so the minute you say there's two different clauses, that's already wrong because it's one clause. But then the founders said, you know what, why don't we put these two clauses in, why don't we make them conflict with each other? So from now in the future, no one will ever know where they, what they mean, <laughs> where they land, how they, how it's, you don't put two conflicting provisions in the, same, right. in the same provision. And so all the point of that is they're both meant for the same purpose. And that is to keep government out of religion, to, to, to not prohibit your free exercise and mine, but also to give you and me the biggest robust practice of religion or no religion. That's the other cool thing. The free exercise clause protects people of faith and people who don't have a faith. Because if you don't have true religious freedom, you don't have free speech, you don't have free assembly, you don't have freedom of redress to the government. We call religious freedom free exercise the first freedom because all other freedoms are built on that. So my point of that little history lesson is, is that it's often misinterpreted by the courts and by people on, on, and experts to say, well, this, we, should, we should clamp down on religious freedom, it's no good. And these type of opinions say, no, religious freedom is good for everyone, and now everybody gets to benefit from that, whether you're in school or out. So I want to come back to the case that you were, you were actually the lead attorney on, that, that even uh, Chief Justice Sotomayor actually named your case specifically in her brief, which was... Which yeah, was, and just a correction, she's not the chief. Oh, but, sorry. That's, I say, that's okay. Yeah, right. But sorry. I just, I just didn't... Uh, no, no, and yeah. it's not nothing to me, but, but yeah, she's... And what's interesting, well, we could talk about this too, but... The dissents, the, the, the few justices who disagree with the majority opinion, they're always good to read. And we, we'll talk about a couple of things that right. she said because they're a lot stronger in their language. Chief Justice John Roberts. Roberts, right. yes. Yeah. Because uh, he wrote the opinion in both the recent Carson case and in the, in right. the um, Trinity case. So I want us to get there because I, I think it's, it's so – we see how this uh, is led in a linear path of successes. Uh, where we're really debating that. But, but I want us to hit on, on this idea of the separation of church and state. I think, frankly, so I wasn't born in this country, so, so I was born in a different country and grew up in a different country and came here as an American when I was 18. Uh, I think because of that, I, I don't think I take my citizenship lightly, and I frankly think a lot of people do. I really value my citizenship. It's, it's something that is really important to me because I see that our nation... Um, as somebody who is truly an immigrant, as, as an immigrant coming into this nation, man, I appreciate what this nation has stood for. And I appreciate the, the, the debate that still takes place with the intentions of the founding fathers. But I think when, if we were to ask the average American the idea of separation of church and state, I think they would think that that's actually in the Constitution. <laughs> right. And when we trace that back, right, and, and please tell me if my history is correct in this, it really comes back to a letter that was written by Thomas Jefferson, where he's the first one to coin that phrase. He coins that phrase as his interpretation of the First Amendment statement. One statement, not two. Right? Absolutely. And it was a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association right. assuring them that the government won't get involved in their church and their beliefs. Right. So completely been spun on its head's been then, but you're right, it's not in the Constitution. And, and then that's that's reinforced with James Madison, where James Madison talks about the wall of separation, right? right. So he begins he he begins to coin this term. So it's it's the interpretation 
of some of our founding fathers in this nation. Uh, and then it's an, it is then taken as truth that it is the separation of church and state. When in essence, it, the, the intent of the law was so that we would never revisit a Church of England type of situation where you have the king being able to step in and be able to set religious law because he actually wants to establish political law. Right, and, and force you to worship Right. A specific faith or beliefs or punish you if you don't. Not that that, see, that's the other thing too. That's a, that's a perfect point. And it's not meant to say the government can't encourage or help with religion or, or treat it equally among other people. We have, our history goes back where, you know, our government paid for ministers to go, to go witness to the, to the Indians. Right. Um, and, and so what's interesting is, is that when you look back at the history, it just, it just doesn't fit, you know, the current mantra. But what's important is, is that the free exercise clause again, geeking out, is a personal right that you and I have. The Establishment Clause, the separation of church and state, is, is argued to be one, but it's not. It's a limit on the government's powers to mess around with your free exercise rights. And if you look at it that way, then they don't conflict and there's no tension. Both of them are there to give people the broadest amount of, of free exercise protections that you could possibly have. So they work together. They don't work in tension. Right. And again, we have to look at why it was written. It was written because of the Church of England. Right. I mean, that's why it was written. Now, here, here's, the, here's maybe the biggest challenge that I see. So as, as a as a as a Christian in America and as someone who lives his life in a, a ministry setting with Christian education, I'm, I'm obviously all for this because could it lead to a voucher structure later on? It's, it's super intriguing to me. It's something I'm following very closely. Uh, the state where we live in is Georgia and, and Georgia has been pretty cutting edge with a few things that are leading towards the same principle. Uh, we have a, a program here called the goal, the Goal Program, which is a just a fantastic program that allows us to actually allocate on a family level. If you're filing together, you can now allocate up to $5,000 of your Georgia taxes towards the school of your choice. Yeah, and interestingly, just to throw in there, I worked on a case at the Supreme Court that also helped those tuition programs like the one we have here in Georgia because there was an establishment clause challenge, right, the separation of church and state from some, some taxpayers out in Arizona who said, look, this is, this is government money going to religious organizations. It's unconstitutional. And, and we stepped in and defended that practice and, and basically won. And we, it was a kind of a complicated way to get there. We basically won and was able to uphold those programs. So that's another related case we weren't even talking about, but, but that's exactly right. You can put your right. tax money and either pay it to the government or you can pay it and get a tax credit, which is bottom line, dollar for dollar back. So they're great programs. And you mentioned something before I want to put out there. People need to remember that that as taxpayers, we're also paying for the public schools. Yes. And we're paying to go to a private school. Yes. So people are like, well, you're taking money from the, it's like, no, I'm already paying for public schools I don't use, and plus I'm paying for, you know, so it's, it's our money in the first place. It's not like the government giving us some, you know, some stipend out of the, the goodness of its heart. So just, just for, for our <laughs> listeners, so they understand. So on a, on, a, on a personal level, you can give 2500 If you're filing with your family, you know, with your spouse, you can give $5,000. If you own an SSO pass-through entity, you can actually give $10,000 for each of those entities, which you won't pay to the state of Georgia in taxes. Now, the argument has been, and, and it's so intriguing because people have tried to make this only a religious argument. Right. 
but the argument has been, hey, well, they've approved $100 million in the state of Georgia for this program. So now that's $100 million that Georgia loses in tax right. revenue. Kennesaw State just finished up a, um, a, a very lengthy longitudinal study for the last, I think it's nine and a half years, of this program, this SSO program. Uh, they've just done, and they've, they've done actually a quantifier on what the financial impact is. And what they've determined is that for every dollar that goes in to this program, the state actually receives $2.13 back. So they've actually done this long-term study where they've actually now been able to prove mathematically, numerically, financially, that the impact on this is actually positive to the right. state by more than 100%. Yeah, yeah. It saves the state's money. And what's interesting about that, the case I worked on out of Arizona, they call them STOs out there, right. school tuition organizations, but it was the Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization we represented. And it was interesting because that argument was made, oh, the state's losing money, and it's not true. It's, it shows this program saves the state's money right. because it saves all the education expenses because, as we all know, the government is not as efficient as private organizations. Right. That's just a fact in the right. way that it is. And so what's interesting is, is it, these programs don't cost taxpayer money. They actually save taxpayer money, which is really important for anybody who doesn't go to a private school or says, well, why should I use my money to support what you're doing? Right. Well, the reason is, is you're saving money, too. What, what, I, what I love is that all the pundits that have responded to this, when it was a religious discussion, they're fit and fiery. Right. Uh, but now that it's actually a financial thing and they realize this is actually a windfall for them, it suddenly became pretty smart. Yeah. And, <laughs> you, and know? you know, another, another interesting thing about the case, people always say, well, it's, it's the government giving you their money. Right. And this came up at the, at the Supreme Court, and it might have been Justice Kennedy at the time. And he was saying, well, it's, it's, it's not the government's money until you give it to them where they take it from you, however you look at right. it, and then it's in their possession. This is, is, is your own money that you're not giving to them, you're just giving it somewhere else. And so he made this, this uh, analogy, like if you went to a restaurant and there was like a, you know, a $5 off coupon your meal, you know, they're, they're acting in that case like the $5 coupon is actually the restaurant's money, even though you've never given it to right. them, your bill just gets reduced. Right. And, he, and basically he said, you know, just like everything, all money that you make is not the government's until you give it to them. But, right. they, but, they, but the, the other side wants to make the argument that, that every dollar you make is the government's and only by grace do they let you keep some. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty frightening theory. That's there. terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yet that is that overreach that kind of we constantly, you know, we're constantly kind of trying to hold them accountable for. Right. So, so anyway, I think the goal program is interesting. Yeah. These are all kind of chipping away at the wall. You yeah. know, um, I personally stand on the mindset that I think parents should have the choice. Uh, we're in Gwinnett County. I believe the funding structure last year was $10,863. And I think parents should have the choice on where that, on where that money goes. And quite possibly that ends up. In the state of Georgia, we also have had two other laws. One of them is very cutting edge right now. We've had an SB 10 law, which has been a, a smaller rate of funding for parents who have special needs children. But this last year, they also passed a law called SB 47, which allows a larger quantifier so that the family can actually take their special needs child and make the choice uh, as to what school they're going to send them to. I think it, that is also going to have far-reaching yeah. consequences for those families in Christian ed. Um, okay, now let, let, me, let me come back to this idea of the, the law that was just passed, uh, and, and, and I want to just take it in a direction that I think people have to understand where that goes. So, so when the Supreme Court ruled on this with Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, and he put out his, his statement of, I know there's an official term, it's not statement of finding, 
Opinion. Opinion. He put out his his opinion with that. What's really intriguing is that two of the organizations that expressed um, uh, joy and contentment over that decision, one was a, a Muslim organization and one was a Sikh organization that both uh, talked about how that will impact their education. And this is something that I want to make sure that people understand is that when we fight for this level of equality, when we're saying a parent has the choice, I think sometimes we think, well, that's, that's only Christian, but we have to understand that that's going to impact everyone. When we say we're meant to have equality, then it's equality, yeah. no matter what your background is. How, how have you seen people respond to that mindset? And do they even understand that in the end, that will be the natural consequence? Yeah, you know, many of them don't. But, but I think it's a great point, because when we talk about the freedom of religion in this country, it's freedom to practice any faith or no faith at all. And that's what's the neat thing about the cases that we do. Even if it's on behalf of a Christian school or a Christian church or a Christian organization or a Christian individual, it protects everyone of every faith. And so, for example, if, like you were talking about, if you have a Muslim-based school or a Jewish-based school, they benefit from this too. Because the theme of the case is if the government is going to say, we're going to pay for you, your children, to attend any, you know, any uh, private school, then you include both secular and religious of any religion. And so the nice part about that equality is, is it, it takes care of any religious school, of any denomination, or any faith, and it doesn't allow the government to pick and choose which religions which it shouldn't do. You know, we're going to support one religion and not right. another. But it puts it across the board and benefits anybody of faith. And we have to keep in mind, anyone who's not of faith that chooses a secular private school, they're getting this benefit too. Right. So it's not like they're being left right. out of the equation. And, and, and really, like when we look at that mindset... That seems to be such a better application of Congress, sh Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Like that, that seems like such a better application of that constitutional statement uh, that it means that everyone's equal. I, you know, I, I have, this, mi I have this, this mindset where I think, honestly, the divisions that we experience in America, a lot of that are constituted off of this mindset. Yeah. Where we, we have, we've almost been like trained to be divided because we think that our founders uh, naturally placed in a statement of division. And this wasn't meant to be a statement of division. It, wasn't, it was meant to be a non-statement of favor. We weren't right. meant to favor a Church of England. Yeah. And so here, like we see this mindset where I, I actually think the application of this, while it may be disconcerting for some Christian folks who maybe haven't understood that this will be the, this will be the natural end of this decision, uh, I actually think that it will help support a sense of equality and non-division in our nation because now everybody's seen. Here's just the truth, like from a Christian perspective, truth is still truth, right? So if we believe we have truth, then truth still Will, still wins in the end. Yeah, and 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 you know the the that statement and and what you're just discussing, you know, is is loaded because we can talk all day about that about division in this country and why. And I think one of the problems is is that you know this this country used to be where everybody had a seat at the table, everybody got to discuss what they believed and didn't believe, and and you'd civilly have a conversation and work to towards some some goal, some end. The problem now is, and I think, you know, you know, you blame some of it on social media because of the anonymity and those type of things. The problem is that not everybody's views are accepted anymore. If you don't follow the current orthodoxy, which often it's the religious folks who don't, right? We're, we're antiquated, outdated, not progressive, whatever you want to call us. Um, but we don't follow the current culture. And so now people say, well, you don't deserve a, a seat at the table anymore. You don't deserve to give your views 
or, or to make them known or to influence policy or culture. And that's, danger, that's dangerous when anybody accepts that because the whole point of, of free exercise and free speech in our country is the best antidote to speech you don't like is more speech. That's right. Not censorship, not silencing, not labeling, yes. not these discrimination, hate labels, all this nonsense we have out there. You know, this hate speech, hate speech now, that, you know, speech is violence. You hear all these different ridiculous things. And all that means is if I disagree with what you say, not actual violence or, or threatening violence, but if you say something I disagree with, that's violence to me because it, because it upsets me. Well, that's not how our country was formed. Right. It's not how our country is going to continue to thrive. We've got to be open to points of view that we disagree with, regardless of what they are, and be able to work through those civilly. And, and civilly is important because we're about to see an opinion come from the, the Supreme Court about Roe versus Wade, which is a whole different discussion. Right. But a lot of, of threats being made to justices and people who work in the pro-life movement. This is pure violence. This is not speech. And that's dangerous. And we should never go that route. So, so I, that's a perfect segue because I, I, I want to make sure I jump back into this, la, this last piece. There's a quote that is, is falsely attributed to Edmund Burke, but it's the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Right. And, and in that quote, we, we see this, this mindset where we're, we're almost uh, like trained to be passive, right. you know, that, that somehow kindness is passivity and kindness isn't passivity. Like I love your statement that the only way to combat hate speech is with more speech. It's not with less, it's with right. more, that we're meant to debate. So, so let's trace back to this court case that you were the lead on that they referenced in this most recent Supreme Court. Outline that case for us just a little bit, the details on that for us, would you? Yeah, it, it was, it was a, uh, it's one of those cases where the facts come in and you're like, this is great. Like you couldn't even make up facts that are better than this. And so basically you have the state of Missouri, right? It has this, this admirable program where it's trying to get rid of all the um, used tires in, in lakes and rivers and streams and buried in because it's, it's, it's not good for the environment. And so they do, they start a recycling program. They say, we're going to take all these recycled used tires and we're, and we're going to put them on playgrounds for kids so they have these new rubber surfaces so if you fall on the ground you kind of bounce a little bit it doesn't hurt as much it's not like pea gravel or rocks mm -hmm. or whatever it happens to be so they do this program and they say okay if you have a, a, a school whether it's public or not for profit you could apply for a reimbursement grant to change your playground surface so when the kids fall they don't get hurt Fantastic. And so they have this long application you got to fill out like the government likes to do. And it's got all types of media components and advertising. And you've got to you make the expenditure first and then you get reimbursed. But they're only going to give out a certain number of grants to a certain number of people. So you can apply. So we have a client who has a preschool there and the preschool happens to be operated by a church. And so they apply for this grant. So there's like 44 applications. Um, they decide 14 grants are going to be given to these 14 different organizations. Our client is number five. So they satisfied all the secular criteria that the state wanted and got approved for a grant. No problem. Well, then the state finds out that this preschool is operated by a church, heaven forbid. So they take the grant away. And they say, well, you're a religious organization. We can't give you this money, even though it's just for the surface so the kids don't get hurt. It's like, like, why is it okay to have kids going to a religious school be hurt, but not kids going to a secular school be hurt? It doesn't even make any sense. But they retract the grant and won't give it to them because it's operated by a religious organization. So we file a lawsuit, lose at the district court, lose at the court of appeals, go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules seven to two that that violated the Constitution. And what they basically said uh, Chief Justice Roberts, again, wrote the opinion. He said it's odious to the Constitution, which is a fancy word of saying it stinks, but it's <laughs> odious to the Constitution to discriminate against religious organizations just because they're religious. 
So this equal terms kind of thought. If you're going to open this up to all playgrounds, then you got to give it to, to playgrounds that for religious schools too. Sure. And what was so important about that opinion, it's, it sounds kind of neat and it's, it's kind of narrow facts, but this was the first time in the history of our country where the Supreme Court ruled that not only does it not violate the Establishment Clause to give funds and, and include religious organizations into the program, right? That's been, that's been ruled upon for decades. But it's the first time they ever ruled that the Free Exercise Clause requires the government yes. to allow religious organizations into these programs. That was a sea change. So it was a giant case out of some cool facts, and I got to go visit the school, play with the little kids. It was just one of the neatest things I ever got to do. But arguing that case at the Supreme Court, you don't realize at the time, but how, how momentous it is because it established that principle that now led to this new case that basically said, we're taking Trinity and going forward and say, look, we already said you can't discriminate against religious schools, whether it's based on their status of being religious or whether it's because they're doing religious things, which is what this new case talked about. So a giant ruling, very cool, you know, one of the best experiences of my life going up to the Supreme Court and argued that was a... That was and a you've argued thing. twice at the Supreme Court. I have. And won both times. I have, yeah. yes. So, so I've been to the Supreme Court three or four times. Uh, it's just one of those place that it, places yeah. that is mesmerizing. Yeah. Awe-inspiring. It, 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 really, it really is. It's... it's, it's uh, there's almost no words for yeah, and, it. Yeah, and they build it to be awesome. And what I mean by that is you go into the courtroom, and it's not it's not really big. Not large. Uh, but it's got high ceilings, right. and it's got these high curtains. You know, the ju- when, it, when, it, when the case starts, basically everybody has to stand. They, they knock the gavel. They say the, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, God save the United States in this honorable court. They do the quick little prayer. And then the justices come out from behind the curtains like the Wizard of Oz. It's like, you know, I'm surprised they don't do some smoke around it and stuff. <laughs> but they'll come out, and it's just, it's just awesome. And, and, and so it's just you're at this place. And, and you know, lawyers, this is, you know, for, for athletes, this is the show. Right. This is the ship. This is going to the big game. And so you get there, and it's, it's so awe-inspiring. My fear was I'm going to get up there and words won't come out. You know, my throat's going to be locked. I'm, you know, the, you hear stories of people fainting and, and all kinds of stuff going on. And I'm praying all night long, you know, Lord, give me the words. You know, may it not be me. But it's just such a cool experience to get up there and kind of kind of duke it out a little bit, have these conversations, these debates with the justices who are all brilliant, you know, left, middle, and right. It's just a fun experience. Everyone should go see, you know, at least once in their life just to see how that whole thing works because it's, it's pretty neat. Um, I, I've had a chance to go back even into their private quarters, and they've got fireplaces in their offices. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's yeah. inspiring from the minute you get there. So, so um, in, with your with your work with Alliance for Defending Freedom, you fly all over the nation, and you're defending cases similar to this. The the rubber in a playground yeah. th- that doesn't seem terribly inspiring, right? And, and, and it would be so easy for that organization to walk away from it. You were chatting with me a while ago, and you were, you were out in Arizona, and it was like signage for a Christmas fair for right. a church, right? Right. And, and so that seems, and they told this church they couldn't have signage, but they're letting everyone else have signage. Right. And here you are, flying to the other side of the country, being away from your family, spending the time. There's, a, there's money that's being invested in this through this, this organization that you're with, and it's over signage for a Christmas program. It would be so easy for us to just walk away yeah. from that and 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 pay no mind and just say well that's just the craziness of our nation and keep right. walking and, and that's what I want to say is that it is so easy for us as Americans just to walk by things that we know are categorically wrong right 
and just to say, well, that's it. You know, rather than actually being into the free exchange of ideas with people where we get to challenge them on this. Right. And, and decide, you know, is it important enough to take a stand? And so the other neat thing is, is like, for example, the church we represented in the case you were talking about, small little church in the town of Gilbert, Arizona. Well, how are they going to fight against the state? Right. The state has an unlimited budget. And what do you do? Well, the neat thing about working with ADF is, is we don't charge any of our clients. So we'll come in and we'll sue the state. We'll sue the federal government. We'll sue whoever it happens to be. It doesn't matter how big they are. And these cases that go to the Supreme Court, they cost millions of dollars in attorney fees. That's what it costs us to take one of those cases. But we don't charge the clients. We do it for free. But it's the principle that's important there because, number one, how does that individual take the stand without a group like ours? Because you can't afford to. You can't pay a lawyer that much money you know, over a sign. But these constitutional principles are so important because if we let our rights erode, which for decades the church did, it basically right. just sat back and said, well, you know, the church shouldn't get into politics, which is not biblical, but again, a conversation for another day. Um, but it, it's, it, there's nowhere in life where the Lord ceded any aspect to, 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 to anyone else, right? So all territory is the Lord's. Um, but what's interesting is, is when you decide to take a stand on something like a sign to, 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 to point people toward your church service, um, or you decide to take a stand on a playground, it's not about that particular thing. It's about whether the government can say, you know, religious speech isn't as important as political speech, or let the kids get hurt over at the religious school because who cares about them? You know, the, the principles are, should we treat religious people as second-class citizens? Are we allowed under the Constitution to discriminate against them? We hear a lot about discrimination these days, but is that what it's okay? And the answer is no, because these bigger principles are imbued in the sign, are imbued in the playground. And if we're going to let our rights be eroded, then it's going to be our own fault when it comes where we don't have any rights left. Again, listen, folks who are listening, I say that quote again, often attributed to Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And, and I hope that this has been a kind of a challenge for all of us to not remain silent. Passivity is not kindness. We need to make sure that we are standing up for what is right. We need, right. need to make sure that we're exercising our voice. Dave Cortman, attorney Dave Cortman, out there chipping away with the sign for Christmas and the rubber in the playground gets us to the Supreme Court with, with the idea that could potentially lead to voucher structures in, in America. It's those, it is those small wins that lead us to the big wins. And I, I hope that for folks who are listening today, we can understand, hey, part of this role, part of our, our, our mandate as Americans is to make sure that we're expressing our viewpoints, doing so with respect, doing so with kindness, right. doing so in a nonviolent manner. Uh, but equality is equality, and it means equal for everyone. And so, Dave, I thank you for the work that you are doing. Uh, I thank you for just being a part of the Alliance for Freedom and for the work that they are doing. This is a worthwhile cause for people to invest in uh, with their tax-free dollars to be able to step in there and, and do a do donation that's fully tax-deductible. Uh, it is a great program to have, and it is literally helping shape America. So, Dave, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, I'm excited for what you're doing, and I'm super excited to see where these cases lead to in the, the, the years to come for all of our parents uh, with, with their tuition dollars as well. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure. Great to be on. Thank you for joining us on the Joy of Leadership podcast, where we emphasize the blessings of leadership and our call to this vital role. 